Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Diane Stemple from Heritage Radio Network on the road at San Francisco's Fancy Food Show for Cutting the Curd. I'm sitting down with Jonathan Kaufman, author of the thought-provoking book, Hippie Food, uh, How Back to the Landers, Long Hairs, and Revolutionaries Changed the Way We Eat. Welcome to Cutting the Curd. Thanks for having me on. I'm delighted, uh, especially to meet you in person. It's always fun to meet a new author for me in person. Mm. It's much friendlier. Anyway, so this is a far-reaching historical book. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, was, uh, it was definitely a book that kind of threatened to, you know, kind of expand beyond my own ability to tell the story every time I turned around. <laughs> yes, it seemed like, uh, well, what I, what I, my first question is, what first inspired you to investigate hippie food? I think it was just simply realizing that it was um, that that it, it had all the hallmarks of a cuisine in itself, and that it was that it was created at some time, and that it, it was seemed to be dying out in, mm-hmm. in restaurants mm-hmm. on the West Coast, and and it made me think, well, you know, why don't I treat this like any other cuisine that I write about? Why don't I look at this the etymology of it, basically? Mm-hmm. How did and and and. Also, the question for me was, um, as somebody who grew up in a small town in Indiana, mm-hmm. and my parents were cooking this food, like, mm-hmm. how did they figure out, how did they decide to eat? How did they get there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so those were the two main questions, was like, how, the two main questions were, how, how, did, how did the counterculture begin eating these foods, and then mm-hmm. why did my parents, and how did my parents get access to them in, mm-hmm. in, a, in small town Indiana? Okay. Now, did you conceive of it as a book right away? Did you, uh, you know, pitch the book? Yes. Uh, it, well, I I'd originally the first when I first started thinking about it, I pitched it as a newspaper feature to um, the Alt Weekly I was working for at Seattle Weekly, and they mm-hmm. were like, and the the corporate head um, of editorial said, you know, I just don't think the food's that good. I don't know if I want to really read read about that. And I said, okay, well, I shelved that idea for uh-huh. five years, and okay. and then then I thought about it as a book because the more I began looking into it, the more I realized there were a lot of stories there, and it had a lot of different facets mm-hmm. for me to explore. Mm-hmm. And maybe not just food oriented, more history of counterculture right. and history of how everybody was enmeshed and involved and. Yeah, yeah, how it proceeded. And also history of nutrition. Right, right. How did the project change over time? What, when you set out, when did you set out? How long ago did you start researching? And how did it change over time? 
about five years ago, I started really started you know framing mm-hmm. the narrative, breaking it down into segments that are now chapters in the book that okay. I could could research discreetly and write while having a full time job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really. About three years ago, right before I sold, started selling, you know, pitching it to publishers, um, it I had wanted to have it continue up to the present because mm-hmm. I wanted it to be because it, you know, they did shape the food that we're eating today. Mm-hmm. Really talk about those connections, and we realized, uh, I realized, you know, the my book agent would be too long. It would be too much, and that the really the last three decades weren't as interesting as the first. Okay, so that's that was the big change and mm-hmm. also I decided at that, that point that I really didn't need to be in the narrative mm-hmm. other than in the, in the introduction. Okay. I noticed that your chapters are usually separate topics and chronology overlaps between the chapters. Yeah. How did you make that decision from the start? Uh, yes, partly because, well, it originally came about when I thought everything was going to lead up to the present, but, right. but it ended up, uh, because there were so many things happening, it was, it was a grassroots movement and, mm-hmm. and I couldn't, there was no sort of cause effect leads to, you know, creates its own cause that leads to effect. There was no way I could create a linear narrative around okay. it. I could simply trace patterns of influence and, mm-hmm. and hopefully through, you know, the personal stories mm-hmm. because I'm a journalist, you know, right. um, that that just seemed like the only way to cover okay. a, a grassroots movement. Right. Because for me, it was a little confusing when the same people mm. pop up in another chapter. It's like, where do these people come from? Mm-hmm. Why are they back again? Because uh-huh. uh-huh. there was, was a lot of overlap. There was a lot of overlap. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now, just to let the listeners know, some of the chapters are brown rice and macrobiotic pioneers, brown bread, separate chapter, Back to the Landers and Organic Farming. And then there's also a tofu chapter. Mm -hmm. So he does separate things food-wise, even though the stories in the chapters are mostly about people, movements, complicated relationships, would you say? Yeah, definitely. Now, did anything surprise you in your research? I think a lot of things surprised me. <laughs> that was the delight of it. Was it? I would start looking into something, and it would just take me into some on some direction that I had not been expecting right, at all. Right. So you didn't know this stuff all of it ahead of time. No. Okay. No. Now, one crazy thing that hit me was how crazy the diets were. Yeah. Um, and there were even deaths from being too strict in, yeah. in a macrobiotic sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I'm surprised it survived that. And, well, the counterculture kids, you know, when I started looking to it, I thought, oh, crazy hippies, but they were the, they were the ones who had the most sense. I mm-hmm. mean, they often adapted these very, very kooky, very almost, you know, irresponsible diets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and because they, like they promoted dove by into them. Yeah. Promoted, you know, basically. <laughs> really. I mean, a lot of the, the pre-counterculture health gurus were just a little off the rocker. Right, I mean, right. prescient and, and crazy. And right. At the same time. But, but they were also fighting what I call big commercial food, yeah. which was poisoning us. Yeah. So, yes, they were right to be against it. Right. And I think that and when the counterculture was looking for sources of information about nutrition, I think the fact that a lot of the people they were looking to, to the you know, information, um, 
that they were they were regarded as kooks, that they were like disrespected by the 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 establishment, was part of their appeal. Mm-hmm. It was because mm-hmm. the, you know they it, they distrusted what the messages they were getting from mm-hmm. the government, from media, from mm-hmm. you know even academic nutritionists, mm-hmm. and so anybody else who had an interesting story, they were going to investigate mm-hmm. it. Now, what in the writing or the researching was the most fun? Talking to people. Talking to people. Okay. I mean, it was a lot of fun. And many of them are still alive. Yeah. Yeah. And really, that was the other impetus for writing the book now is that, you know, Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure I caught everybody while they, you know, (laughs) had great stories. And some of the older folks were were a little harder, you Mm -hmm. know. I mean, they were beginning to lose memory. But um, everybody else is, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And they're at this Mm -hmm. point where they want to tell the stories. Yes. I'm sure they're happy to. So. Yeah. (laughs) What was the hardest part of writing the book? Um, knitting it together, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, knitting, that was hard. Uh, fitting it in to a full-time job. <laughs> so you worked throughout. That was my next question. Yeah. Did, were you able to take any time off? I was. I was uh-huh. really grateful I got to take um, two two months of leave from the paper. Okay, to, to, do to the finish up? Okay, okay, that was good. Um, did you visit all the places? Did you visit Vermont, Minneapolis, and L.A., or did you just did. do it on the phone? Yeah, no, I really wanted to get a sense. And there are also so many local archives. Mm-hmm. Um, and because so much of it is based on oral history that I really wanted to talk to people in person. Mm-hmm. And then I knew that the moment I met one person, then I'd get a recommendation to go meet another person, meet mm-hmm. another person, and see what they mm-hmm. had. So there was definitely a lot of online research because so many newspapers are digitized now. Mm-hmm. That was hugely helpful. Right. But that was just always background information. Before you went. Yeah. Okay. Now, so where did you go? You went to Vermont? Let's see. Uh, going east to west. I went to Boston, Vermont, Ann Arbor, Minneapolis, rural Tennessee, outside Nashville, Austin, uh, and then all up and down the West Coast. Great visits. Yeah. Oh, and I could have gone to Madison. I could have gone right. to the Ozarks. I wanted to go to Boulder. I mean, I, you know, I could have done quite a tour. For the next book. Yeah. Now, I'm wondering, what is your educational background? What did you study? Are you, is it history? Is it journalism? What Neither. What did you do? Oh, English. Uh, I was an English minor, uh, <laughs> comparative religious studies major. Oh, okay. And then I ended up cooking after college. Uh-huh. And then I, As many do. Yeah. <laughs> and then sort of stumbled into journalism Okay. about 20 years ago. Okay. Um, what did you eat growing up? I eat I ate a, a lot of these foods. I mean, uh, that was there was a real uh-huh. nostalgic component, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, my parents weren't doctrinaire. Mm-hmm. I, I had friends whose parents were, and, mm-hmm. and you know, I continued like outside Mennonite. I was I grew up in a Mennonite family, and mm-hmm. liberal Mennonites uh, really embraced the diet. You know, mm-hmm. around 1975 to 1978. So mm-hmm. everybody I knew was eating the same food. Okay, and um, which was that? Was that brown rice? A lot of lentils, okay. brown rice, whole wheat bread, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, cutting out the sugar, cutting out mm-hmm. any dyes in, mm-hmm. in cheeses or, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, un- lack of, no pro- processed foods, no sugared mm-hmm. cereals, things like that. And what do you eat now? Um, I eat very, very broadly, partly because <laughs> I eat for my work, you know. Ah, okay. Uh, so I still do go out to eat a lot. So you uh, eat meat? Work. I eat meat. I You're eat everything. You're not vegan. No, my, my partner <laughs> is vegetarian. Oh, okay. So we cook vegetarian at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's so, yeah. really doable. That's sort of a, a healthy mix. If 
you know, to do vegetarian at home and yeah. meat outside. Yeah, and I, I mean, I definitely, since in the five years that I've been researching the book, I have definitely integrated more whole grains oh, back into my diet. Okay, okay. So, so it's influenced you in a healthy way. It has. Okay. It's time for our break. Uh, this is Diane Stemple of Cutting the Curd interviewing Jonathan Kaufman about his new book, Hippie Food, which chronicles the long history of how hippie food has changed our diet in America. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. Diane Stemple interviewing Jonathan Kaufman about his newly published book, Hippie Food. When did it come out? Uh, January 23rd. Oh. <laughs> okay. So now on to the topics discussed in the book. Can you speak about, first, the history and differences of the first health food restaurants in L.A.? I think they're called Back to Nature Health Hut mm -hmm. and the Aware Inn. Oh, those were actually, those were in the 50s. Okay. And uh, those were actually not the first at all. I mean, the first, oh, okay. the first health food restaurants date back to like 1910s, 1920s when okay. they had a raw food restaurant called the Eutrophian. Mm. And um, there was one, a corrective health cafe. LA has this very long history of alternative medicine and mm. alternative diets. Okay. Uh, which are particularly centered around raw food. And even, I think many of them would have been considered vegan at this point. Mm -hmm. But the 1950s, uh, the two restaurants I wrote about in the book were significant because they ended up, they the people who behind them ended up directly influencing the counterculture, you know, 15 food years movement. later. Mm -hmm. But they were uh, they were sort of the I, I call them the in some ways the alpha and the omega of mm -hmm. health food in mm -hmm. LA. Um, mm -hmm. One was the the aware in mm -hmm. was uh, very posh. Um, they they served sort of continental cuisine along with you know vegetarian pilafs mm -hmm. and. Uh, raw raw sugar cheesecakes, and so they, they attempted to really replicate uh, sort of what the other cuisine that was happening in LA restaurants, only with a healthier, lighter bent. And mm -hmm. They they did try to buy organic vegetables, mm -hmm. and then the Back to Nature Health Hut was just a madhouse. It was, it only <laughs> lasted for two years because okay. they really had no <laughs> business sense whatsoever. But it was like you know. Alfalfa sprout sandwiches on whole wheat bread and and like a so a soybean tomato casserole and but mm -hmm. they'd have these like live hula performances and <laughs> I, it just it <laughs> hula hoops or hula, hula grass from skirt. Hawaii yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay now let's talk macrobiotics 
What I recall is how strict and boring the food seemed. And I couldn't be a good hippie because it was the food was too boring. So what, I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> it, and, and just to let our listeners know how severe it was, no red meat, no sugar, no alcohol, no dairy, no refined flour, no yeasted breads. Often no fruit. No tropical fruit. No tropical fruit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what were they eating? They were mostly eating Japanese peasant food mm-hmm. as prepared by American 20-year-olds who didn't know anything about Japanese peasant food. Oh, so it would taste even worse exactly. by the 20-year-olds here than the peasants in Japan. I'm orig- I mean, I have had numerous uh, former macrobiotics tell me that the... The teachers, their teachers actually cooked beautiful food, mm-hmm. um, particularly uh, Aveline Cushy, who she and her husband Michio were kind of the Boston, mm-hmm. um, the Boston center. gurus, the mm-hmm. Boston center for macrobiotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, it, they didn't, they, they mostly focused on whole grains um, mm-hmm. and their only seasonings that they really allowed were uh, tamari, which mm-hmm. um, they, they kind of brought that name to America. Mm-hmm. The idea of the tamari was brewed soy sauce as opposed to mm-hmm. uh, enzymatically uh, produced soy sauce like kikoma, or not kikoma, sorry, <laughs> lachoy. Oh, okay. um, and and uh, sesame oil and umeboshi vinegar. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty, it. that was pretty, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Now, miso? Miso as well, sorry. Oh, okay. Miso as okay. well. Yeah. So miso is not one of those. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know if it has a different name. Oh, yeah, no, miso. Yeah, okay, they, yeah, okay, they, and okay. they were some of the first Americans to brew miso. Okay. So. And miso soup, while good, is pretty mellow. I mean, taste-wise, yes. it's like... Yeah, they didn't like garlic. They didn't like spices. Wow. I mean, it was a... Wow. You know, no pepper? Um, no, not really. Oh, wow. It might be too yin or yang. Right. Now, what is the yin and yang business of food? Uh-huh. So, I mean, tra- you know, traditional Chinese medicine and, yeah. and, you know, many East Asian cultures, like, have... Uh, divide foods up into their yin or yang mm-hmm. characteristics and try and balance them in the diet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. George Osawa um, another big guy in the book. He was the he was the guy who Very a Japanese guy. guy who invented macrobiotics and brought it to the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. He was the one who he he picked up that idea, but he grafted his own ideas of what yin and yang were onto foods, mm-hmm. and so they had nothing to do with traditional Chinese medicine. Huh. So, uh, so he would, you know, practice that you would want to balance these foods and that Americans were, he would say that Americans are far too yin, mm-hmm. uh, that we need to yangize our diets um, mm-hmm. by eating you know, brown rice primarily and avoiding mm-hmm. sugar, especially and alcohol mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, yeah, and meat. <laughs> okay. So, um, now let's talk about white bread and brown bread. Mm-hmm. I remember white bread being boring always mm-hmm. but but it was we were lied to about it being healthy yeah <laughs> totally lied to yeah. like uh, wonder bread was supposed to grow bodies in 12 ways uh-huh. <laughs> and it had nothing in it right i i used to yearn for wonder bread because my parents served us something healthier you know it was still white but a little more yeah. I, oh, I missed when my parents gave up white bread as, as, when I was a small child. Um, mm-hmm. I would miss the the grilled cheese sandwiches. Oh, there was something about that crisp, light texture that oh. I really liked. Did they make the grilled cheese with the brown bread? Yep. 
Oh, okay, but it just wasn't the same. It just it was too to me. At yeah, that yeah, time, yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just. But I do think brown bread didn't taste as good in the beginning. Right. Like, yeah. why couldn't we make the healthier foods taste better? I think because nobody had then. experience. You know, there, uh-huh. you didn't have a tradition of baking this food. Like, all of that knowledge of how to make whole wheat bread light uh-huh. and tasty uh-huh. had been lost in, you know, from the 30s to the 1960s when everybody, we were all sort of switching to... Excitedly eating Exactly, industrialized food. Yeah, yeah. And so when you have a bunch of 20-year-olds who are trying to teach themselves how to cook from whatever resources they can find, they're not going to... And with all these new ingredients that they didn't even grow up with, they're right. not going to get great results at first. Right, right. I, now, what do you think the percentages are now in grocery stores, white bread, brown bread? Uh, I don't know the exact percentages, but uh, they're... they're I did read several news reports that have said that now whole wheat bread outsells white bread in grocery stores. Yay! <laughs> all over? Uh, all over the country. Oh, good. However, uh, my guess is that some of what they call whole wheat bread is... Might be phony. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It might be like Wonder Bread with brown in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so let me see. When... When do you think brown bread began to taste better? I think the mid-70s was uh, a period when I think over the course of the past, you know, the previous five to seven years, they'd done a lot of experimenting. And there was there were all these collectively run mm-hmm. bakeries that sprung up all mm-hmm. over the country. Uh, a lot of them were basing the recipes on Edward S.B. Brown's Tassajara bread book, mm-hmm. and that recipe is still delicious. Oh, okay. It's a it's okay. a very it's a foolproof method for making large batches of bread. It was mm-hmm. easy to scale up, and so I you know they enough older bakers told me that by the late seventies they felt like their bread has okay. g- gotten lighter and more flavorful. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about organic farming. Uh, Organic farming really had counterculture values built in. Yeah, and still does. Yeah, yeah. And to not destroy the earth, so like to take care of your soil and to not poison people with pesticides, which which also takes care of your soil. Mm-hmm. And um, I love the story. Tell us about the National Natural Organic Farm Association in Vermont. So the Natural uh, Natural Organic Farming Association, which is now called the Northeast Organic Farming Association, okay. it still exists. It still exists. It has um, eleven chapters oh, all great. over the all over the northeastern states. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was founded in 1971 by a guy named Samuel Kamen, who mm-hmm. he had been an engineer who kind of dropped out uh, a little bit. He was a little older than those mm-hmm. of the kids. He traveled around the country, uh, ended up charming his way into a uh, like a cabin in New Hampshire where he was. He and his wife and his his growing family were living, and he decided he was going to grow his own food. He had never. Mm-hmm. He grew up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. He had no idea how to grow his own food. <laughs> so he he started researching uh, the library, mm-hmm. and he found a couple of of organic farming treatises, and mm-hmm. it really fit with everything else that was coming out of the counterculture, the other mm-hmm. ideals that he was absorbing. So he decided he was going to, not only was he going to try and grow his garden organically, but that he was going to, we were going to have, he was going to teach everybody how to do it. He sort of had this hubris that he, <laughs> like he could he stay He was going to start the movement. Yeah. 
It, he, and he really did in, in Vermont and New Hampshire. He drove mm-hmm. around both states, mm-hmm. pinning up uh, flyers at feed stores and you know and markets. Anybody that would let him put post a flyer, mm-hmm. and they had this meeting outside and you know uh, on this farm. Oh, he also set up a training farm. Right. So he had right. all these like you know. 17 to 25 year olds who he just invited them to come and live and he would teach them how to organically farm even mm-hmm. though he didn't know much more than they did right, and they right. lived in teepees on his pro- on this farm in uh-huh. in Vermont and um they so it was really back to the land it really it was, was back to the land yeah. <laughs> like I was not kidding yeah. Well, he's now. Did you meet him? Is he alive? I I didn't get to meet him in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did talk to him on the phone. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's cool. in his eighties. Oh wow. Now um, it's. One of the reasons it was centered in Ver- in Vermont was that there was really cheap land. Yeah. And then there were new roads, which helped connect everybody. Yeah. Which I did not know that about Vermont history. Um, and then I think it said 10,000 rural communities were formed from 65 to 75. Is that in Vermont or the whole country? So I don't I don't remember the exact figures. I would, mm-hmm. I would, um, mm-hmm. But uh, Vermont in particular... Be- well, I was so interested in Vermont because um, mm-hmm. there was a, a large migration that was happening. You mm-hmm. can see it in, in demographic charts. You could see it mm-hmm. in the census. Yeah, sort of yeah. Like something like 11% population increase between 70s and 80s. Yeah. But in Vermont, it was particular because it was sort of, it was dying. The city, the, 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 the state was sort of dying out yes. because it was hard to farm there profitably. Mm-hmm. Um, kids were moving to the cities. And then you had this influx because the land was cheap of all of these young, you mm-hmm. know, these young folks from other parts of the Northeast mainly, mm-hmm. who settled in there, and they changed city the politics. City folk. <laughs> they changed the politics of the state. They, mm-hmm. I mean, the character of the state. Yay! It was pretty. It <laughs> the was good pretty guys amazing. win. Well, it's a nice small state, so you don't need that many people to change yeah. it. Yeah. And, and they also, because they were so involved in, commu- they were all community oriented, you know, despite the fact they wanted to live rurally, they right, all wanted to right. be part of rural communities. Mm-hmm. So they got very, it was very easy for them to get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. Now tell me about uh, Robert Horiat. Mm-hmm. Did he invent the farmer's market? He did not invent it, but he certainly um, claims responsibility for, for bringing it to Vermont, and he mm-hmm. was part of. So the farmers markets um, had been dying out across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the ones that were still existing were these, you know, like Reading Terminal, um, mm-hmm. or in San Francisco we had Alameda Farmers Market. We mm-hmm. had stalls, and you had mm-hmm. farmers from all around who weren't growing organically. Right. You know, they right. would just sort of just... sell, maybe even sell somebody else's mm-hmm. produce. And his vision was to connect the organic farming movement to uh, to the public by creating farmers markets all over Vermont. And mm-hmm. so he established like more than a dozen, uh, NOFA, um, Northeastern, mm-hmm. or right. you know, they, they established more than a dozen farmer's markets within just a few years. And that was happening in other, in Madison mm-hmm. and um, I think somewhere in New Mexico. There were other places right. where that was happening, but mm-hmm. in nowhere with the concentration that Vermont, that mm. it did in Vermont. Mm. So cool. I mean, I am still involved with Vermont through Jasper Hill and in Hardwick at least, yeah. They're just creating a whole economy of cheese and vegetables and, you know, all sorts of good things still. So I actually have a question for you. When okay. I was I was interviewing um, Peter Gold, who used to be part of the Packer Corners commune mm-hmm. uh, down by Brattleboro. Mm-hmm. 
And he said that he and his commune, they were, he was the cheesemaker there mm -hmm. and that nobody was really doing artisanal farmstead cheese. And so he was like buying things, you know, he's buying mm -hmm. like manuals and trying mm -hmm. to manufacture all these different cheeses and some mm -hmm. of them worked and many of them didn't. But mm -hmm. he, he said that back to the landers were really responsible for the artisanal cheese movement in Vermont. Huh. Now, um, I don't know the answer to that because my Jasper Hill came in the early two, 200s. Oh, wow. So that's way after. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's around when other people started. So I don't know my Vermont cheese history as well as I should. Though there is a cheese trail now in Vermont. Oh, wow. There's a map where you can go visiting or checking out various uh, cheesemakers because it's packed with cheesemakers. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so sorry I don't know the answer. Uh-oh, the interviewer doesn't know the answer. <laughs> sorry, I sprung uh -oh, that on you. Uh -oh, I just thought uh -oh. it was interesting that, you know, that, that this DIY ethos that all the Back to the Landers had mm -hmm. spread to cheese too. Now, more of what I was expecting in the book before I had opened it was there's a quote uh, that says the back to the landers had an unexamined nostalgia for the 19th century and the fantasy of self-sufficiency. Um, and I guess I was expecting less facts and more philosophy. Huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was interesting to see how packed your book is with facts, you know, real, like just real history, real interviews. And then there's a bad guy, Frederick Stave. Stare. Stare. Yes. Stare. Harvard School of Public Health. Yeah. He, uh, he, he was the most vocal opponent of organics, right. of health food. Um, he put out several books. Uh, one was called, he, he co-authored a book called Panic in the Pantry. Right. Um, and he would, you know, he used to say things like, you know, chemicals are our friends. Yes, <laughs> food additives are, are, like fr are like friends. Right. <laughs> what is he talking about? Did he believe it or he, was he paid off? Well, both of those. Um, <laughs> he was, uh, his, his opinion was that if you ate a balanced diet, Mm -hmm. that, you know, we would get all the vitamins and nutrients we needed. And he really believed well, that. that might be true, but balanced how? Right. But then there's also <laughs> been some scholarship in the past few years, in fact, since I started writing the book, mm -hmm. um, that has looked at his funding from the sugar industry <laughs> and that he really <laughs> yeah. did receive a fair amount of funding and, mm -hmm. and you could sort of trace that in his anti, his, mm -hmm. his anti-anti-sugar <laughs> stance. Or his, right, you know, right, right, right. So. Yeah, yeah. I've read uh, other books about the, the fat crisis where it just seems like the bad guys are don't want us to know the real health benefits of fat, mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, cheese people are into, mm -hmm. um, and, and instead want us to do low fat, which is awful. Yeah, yeah. You know, awful and crazy. Anyway, so now I want to talk about Grace uh, Gershoni mm -hmm. Jensen. A New Yorker who moved to Vermont in 73 and apparently was super instrumental in developing organic certification. Yeah. So by the 
the early 1970s, there was some talk about organic certification from mm-hmm. the Rodale publication, Rodale mm-hmm. Press, which mm-hmm. uh, which put out Organic gar- Farming and Gardening magazine. Mm-hmm. And so they came out to California and tried to come up with some idea of what certification was. But it really wasn't until the, the mid-70s when you had a, um, a critical mass of organic farmers who were also seeing going to the farmers markets and seeing people kind of put, sell their other their produce as organic whether uh-huh, they did or when not. it wasn't right and there were all these concerns around faking and so grace uh, was in 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 vermont grace was really instrumental in figuring out what would certification what would what would it look like to certify an organic farmer mm-hmm. and then it, at that point it was really organic matter in the soil rather than testing for yeah. all of these Chemi- for chemical residue. Okay. Uh, but but the the, you know, the certification framework was like one page long, you mm-hmm. know, and it was voted on by the members of NOFA. She was part mm-hmm. of um, mm-hmm. So it felt like a participatory, participatory peer review process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Grace was also instrumental in... In, in the 1990s, as the USDA finally got interested, as organics mm-hmm. got became a big enough business, mm-hmm. and as there, there were enough scandals around um, pesticide residue mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. that got people interested in, in organics in a way that they hadn't in the 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, that she was went started translating, you know, these these sort of older community generated mm-hmm. standards into mm-hmm. industry standards, mm-hmm. and so she had then ended up you know, fighting in many ways with all the people who had, who had supported her in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I know uh, cheese people uh, have a little bit of a different slant on organic because organic for cheese doesn't necessarily mean good cheese. Yeah. You know, and, and I imagine there are different standards in different industries that it's more meaningful for some than others. Yeah. Uh, and now it is big business. It really is. It's more. It's so, more than forty-three billion dollar business. Yeah, yeah. Industry. So you, ne- you then when it gets that big, you just get curious. Well, does it still mean something? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are very good questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, oh, and I also see came in started Stonyfield Farm. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. That, that was that. There's a real, you know, respectable yogurt still. Yeah. Well, from and he. Him. I mean, he was never. He was never anti big business. He. Uh-huh. Um, what was What was sort of fascinating was that he um, moved around a little bit in that 1970s, but then ended up on this this plot of land that was too stony. This the field was too stony to graze to to raise. Um, vegetables, and so he started raising Jersey cows, and they made yogurt out of it. And and that's how it got called Stony Field. Very cool. (laughs) I like that story. I didn't know that. Was that in the book? I missed it. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now, vegetarian food, why was it so bad then and so delicious now? (laughs) I agree with you 100%, by the way. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think, again, it was that problem of 20-year-olds, you know, who, who had never Warned been raised cooks. on it, who had no idea, like, how to build flavors, and and then they were adopting all of these ingredients, like, you know, whole grains that nobody knew how to cook right, with, and right. more things like miso and tamari right. and tahini. 
but but the vegetarian diets before 1970 were pretty ascetic. Even yeah, the yeah. even the Seventh Day Adventists who'd been vegetarian mm-hmm. since the 1840s, mm-hmm. um, they had a very very simple diet, uh-huh. very, um, and and it relied a lot on prepackaged uh, mm-hmm. meat meat uh, substitutes oh, like nutto uh, pro- right, uh, right. nuttolene and protose. Uh. That's always that's always a mistake to me. Uh, like I went to Rich Table in San Francisco oh, Friday yeah. night and had roasted cauliflower, and it was absolutely delicious. Yeah. I I roast cauliflower, and I love to order roast cauliflower. Oh, I love that cauliflower. <laughs> it's great. And I don't even remember cauliflower from my childhood. Mm-hmm. Do you? Or maybe um, not you very ate much. It. We had a little bit of the milk cheese. You know, the we would have cheesy cauliflower. Oh, okay. Like oh, oh right, 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 right. Okay. I didn't like it. Now, was it borrowing from other cultures that helped? That was a big part of it, especially initially. Is that who were know, less meat centric, perhaps? Right. And they, there were all these. They, a lot of people told me they were like, "Well, if if a, you know India can build a great cuisine out of you know vegetarian, well, why can't we just adopt all of these ingredients right. and techniques and learn learn from them?" Right. Mm-hmm. So the same happened with anything, any any dish they could make vegetarian that or that had a more vibrant spicing or just came mm-hmm. in different forms. And uh, Molly Katzen's Moosewood Cookbook helped yeah. considerably. Yeah, for me, Moosewood Cookbook is sort of the end of the story, but for most right, people, right. it's the beginning yes. of the story. Yes, that was what I noticed too. It's like, oh, here's something familiar. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, so just a few more tricky questions. Uh-oh. Um, for in San Francisco, what do you think was the relationship between the communal food culture and the development of San Francisco as the current tech hub? Can you do you see any connections? There is a very very good book. Um, I'm going to blank on the title. I think it's what the Dormouse said about the connection between psychedelic culture and the birth of the personal computing industry. And so you certainly, I did not even look into that, but Uh I certainly, you know, Steve Jobs um, was somebody who followed some of the, you know, the the pre-hippie health food diets. He was a vegetarian for a while. Mm -hmm. There was this connection between creative modes of living and creative thinking Mm -hmm. and a certain uh, distrust of uh, the establishment. Yeah, and working in your garage instead of getting a job mm-hmm. is sort of counterculture. Yeah. yeah, there's a utopian aspect to the tech industry here as mm-hmm. well, and I think mm-hmm. that came out of the 60s. Mm. Okay. Now, this is a harder question, I think. You're, you write almost an apology in the intro about how white the world of hippie food was. Yeah. And you even use the word disgust. <laughs> like you're mad at... The yourself or the world or you know can you talk about that a little and how do we help that how yeah. are there books are there recommendations what do you think well I think uh, the first thing would be that the world is changing very quickly and, and the sustainable agriculture world the world of sustainable food is is going through a, a great change a great necessary change right mm-hmm. now where it's where mm-hmm. it's a lot of the movement is coming from people of color, mm-hmm. and so uh, it's expanding the audience. And I think that the the messages, 
that are coming out today are much more inclusive, much more interesting, much more nuanced mm-hmm. than they were in the 1970s. But mm-hmm. uh, it, I had, as somebody who's written about food in the Bay Area and Seattle for mm-hmm. 20 years, mm-hmm. I've just always written about, you know I mean? Everybody. My, everybody. Mm-hmm. That's who mm-hmm. my, my audience is, that's who, who's making food. Mm-hmm. And to then want to take that back to the 1970s yes. and realize how white most of the circles right. were. And right. the circle, and this is the this is the cuisine that shaped my ideas about right. food. Right, right. That was the part where it became oh, okay. a little <laughs> bit more painful, you know? Right. Um, but, it, yeah. <laughs> okay, because I felt like, but I felt like you shouldn't blame yourself or this is just what you chose and it's history. And, well, yeah. and you can't insert people that weren't there. But also, I think to not address it, you know, I was really writing for three generations. Right. Uh, I was writing for the baby boomers who lived it, people mm-hmm. like me who mm-hmm. grew up eating it, whether they mm-hmm. wanted to or not, and mm-hmm. then and then the you know millennials. Right. And, right. And I think all so three you felt you should explain yeah, why this was missing. To not address it mm-hmm. would have would have looked too much like an oversight. Okay. Because okay. uh, I thought I read it and I was sort of like, oh no, like. You're unhappy. <laughs> like, do I want to start the book? <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> yeah, but I, I want to explain you the flaws. Strict. You are pretty strict on the topic. Mm-hmm. You know, like just feeling bad. Like this is we're we're neglecting a whole bunch of people here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, those and are, reflect are. my you know right. criticism of the sustainable okay. food movement okay. for the past twenty years too. Okay. So, yeah. Well, you're right. Still, in you know in. Being at the fancy food show, you can still see that it's mm-hmm. a very white place. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, I want to thank you. Thanks so much, Jonathan Kaufman. Uh, I encourage all to read his extremely interesting book, which presents a very in-depth history of hippie food. That I hope is fun as well. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And, uh, well... Uh, it was a funny time. It <laughs> There are a lot of great stories that we barely uh, mentioned. You know, the the characters abound Mm -hmm. in the book. So thank you very much for being on Cutting the Curd. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.